0: We're starting to see the collection of data well beyond just, you know, your name and your email address and your phone number and so forth. But who owns your emotional state? And then obviously, you know, we're not that complicated, right? The algorithm can figure out during a particular emotional state to deliver up this sort of message to you at that time will increase your chances of buying something. We know that all of that tech exists. And then once you drop into the pure metaverse, their ability to know everything about you. I do think there's wonderful use cases out there and it will be good, but we've got to recognize that there are lots of ills that come with this. And so there's a regulatory framework, there's also responsibility that we want from the vendors who are promulgating this stuff.
1: Hi, I'm Christy.
2: I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast.
1: Where we talk about the risks and the opportunities of the data age.
2: What it means for you and what it might mean for us all.
1: Today we're with Nick Abrams. Nick, welcome to The Foil. You're the global leader of technology and innovation for Norton Rose Fulbright. You're the founder of successful online legal site LawPath with more than 90,000 users. And you created the world's first AI-enabled privacy chatbot, Parker. Parker. It's very exciting to have you on here to talk because so much has been going on in the world of crypto and the creation of the metaverse. We'll talk about the metaverse later. First, ComBank added crypto to its app, another example of crypto going mainstream, the first crypto-related ETF launched in Australia. It smashed previous first-day trading records within the first 15 minutes. PayPal, Visa, MasterCard are now also accepting crypto.
0: I feel like the whole podcast is done. And I've got to say, thank you very much for having me on the show. And well, I'm a big fan of you guys. Obviously, delighted to be asked. So yeah, I, I think that you know, little by little, we've seen crypto come out of the shadows and, and it really is in the shadows. I mean, I've, I've got a keynote presentation, which I love giving, and it's titled 10 Things to Do with Crypto That Don't Involve Buying Drugs on the Dark Web. <laughs> because effectively, the way that most people, particularly those folks over the age of, say, 30, think of crypto is it's just associated with with criminality. And actually, that's not true. I mean, there's elements of that. And, you know, that's historical. You know, it does continue a little bit to mainstream. But the opportunities now and, and the way we're seeing the mainstreaming of crypto is truly exciting.
1: Tell us about that. Why is it exciting? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah
0: yeah so maybe um how much to put it in chronological order so you know it's we first had a uh, you know we first experienced crypto with Bitcoin um and and so the the founder of um, uh, of Bitcoin is Satoshi. We don't know who that person is. so that's sort of slightly odd to begin with, which is um you know, we, we are trusting ourselves to a technology where we don't know the founders or how it came about. Uh, and that's uh, you know, so we're now over 10 years with Bitcoin. And the one thing that we have seen about that is that I believe it's largely irrelevant that we don't know who created this. What we have seen is that the underlying architecture, so Bitcoin was the first to introduce the world to blockchain architecture, and that underlying architecture has proven over the last decade to be incredibly resistant to attack. And 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 so if you look at you know, yeah. virtually all other technology, certainly most software solutions, have vulnerabilities and you know are brought unstuck by various forms of virus or or attack. But blockchain is so elegant in the way that it's put together that it has it hasn't been successfully compromised now there's been we've seen exchanges where you buy crypto we've seen them get knocked over but the underlying architecture of uh, of cryptocurrency being the blockchain has proven to be very resilient and so you know its stood the test of time and it's it's really starting to move particularly into uh, into the financial service as well
2: yeah, it's, that's such a that's such an interesting observation. The the fact that we don't know—I mean, so Satoshi Nakamoto, famously the, a pseudonym, mm. um, uh, you know—and the real the real identity of that founder unknown to the vast majority of people. It seems through whisperings that there's like a very inner circle who might sort of be able to read between the lines and sort of guess uh, who that, that is. But I feel like there's a there's a dozen Netflix series <laughs> yeah, that that's, the, that's yeah, right conspiracy theories, and then there's in
0: fact a court case happening right at the moment in the U.S., which has um, our very own uh, fellow, there's an Australian who claims to be Satoshi, and um, so there's a court case uh, about to kick off in the U.S. where it's it's that fellow, Mr. Wright, and he is being sued by the relatives of one of his close uh, uh, colleagues, because they they were both working together. There's no doubt the two of them were working in the early stages of distributed ledger and blockchain. And um, the the relatives of of this fellow who's passed away, who worked with Mr. Wright, and um, the relatives believe that um, Mr. Wright is in fact uh, Satoshi, and also that their father or grandfather it is and um, must be their father and um, was also part of that that group. And there's there's Satoshi's wallet and Satoshi's wallet. Has billions of dollars of Bitcoin, billions of Bitcoin, or value of Bitcoin in there, and so there's this huge court case now going on to see, you know, what what can we find out about whether
2: they they were in fact co- collaboratively Satoshi. So, indeed. interesting, indeed, it'd be, it'd be trivial for the for the real Satoshi Nakamoto to demonstrate. That they were, that, that they did indeed hold that idea. You know,
0: how good would that be? The big reveal yeah. in the courtroom, <laughs> and it being like L. Woods in Legally Blonde. Uh, <laughs> you know, the big the big reveal where Satoshi
2: walks in, and it's sort of a you know a handsome Japanese developer. I like that idea. Okay. Had, indeed, and you know, the, of course, the moment where he says, "Well, watch this. I'll transfer some Bitcoin from yeah. that wallet." <laughs> Click transact, and then we wait for <laughs> what is it? Two days, three days? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah and, well, I think, to, I think we've think, to go I think ahead. We got the makings of something
0: here. We will go. On the,
2: <laughs> but of course, the um, you know, the point of not knowing who Satoshi Nakamoto is, I think, resonant with the principle of the technology itself, which is, as they say, trust less. Mm. So we don't need to trust the um you know the, the bona fides of the of the founder we don't need to know about the principles or the philosophies because the technology itself kind of speaks for itself in that sense. Um, I wonder if you could perhaps um, help us understand you know why it is that crypto t- cryptocurrencies are trustless and how exactly it is that you know that sets them apart from like fiat currencies, for example, that we you know use more day to day to buy stuff like bread and milk
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe maybe a way to think of this is um but let's have, so so well. Uh, this is a good example. So um, you know, Christy Adam, as you know, Christy is a very generous person, and so Christy and I were we were uh, we had a meeting the other day and then went for lunch afterwards. And um, I recall I borrowed uh, twenty dollars from Christy, and um, and I just realised that I, um, I I failed to pay that back, Christy. You know, I'm a, I'm from Queensland originally. We're very frugal people. Um, <laughs> But you know what, I will I'll get that back to you. Why don't I send you a PDF of a $20 bill? How would that work? So, so how does Christy feel about that? Not super keen, I'd imagine. And and that's at the core of what we've seen with the internet. And so what the internet did was it allowed um really the, the, the transmittal or the the ability to transfer content. An infinite number of times at zero incremental cost, and so you know we can send an email you know once, or we can send that same email to ten people, or a thousand people, or ten thousand people, wouldn't cost us any more. So it's marvellous to democratise content, but what it hasn't figured out is how to transfer value. How do we actually get value? And you know, the, no one wants a PDF of a twenty dollar bill because we know that that's not the twenty dollar bill. That's not the value. And so what blockchain does, the underlying um, technology, what it does is it gives us the ability to determine that that item of digital content, be it a token, um, you know, a crypto token or an NFT, and we might talk about non-fungible tokens later, um, uh, that when you transfer that, that is the one uh, and only version of that digital asset and so if we think about blockchain, it's really just, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a group of databases that are all linked, that all have a way of verifying what new transactions should be recorded in that database. And
2: so that's why they call it distributed ledger uh, technology. Yeah, and distributed because everybody gets a copy of it. Is that right? If you want to trade Bitcoin... You know, your principle, uh, if you didn't want to do that through a through an exchange, as you mentioned, then you could, you know, download the software, and the first thing it'll do is download the entire history of every transaction that's ever been made on the Bitcoin platform since day one. Is that right? Yeah. Well, effectively, yeah. I mean,
0: you, yeah. I I wouldn't recommend doing it on your home of iMac. Um, it might might slow might slow you down a little bit. But yeah, conceptually, what we're looking at is is tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Machines that are that are built to handle this sort of transaction, and what they do is it's a consensus network proposition. And so, um, what happens is if there's a new um, transaction, so if someone transfers uh, some Bitcoin, there's a new transaction that needs to be entered into the ledger. And so, more than fifty percent of the machines that are processing Bitcoin have to agree that that new transaction satisfies. Uh, the relevant technical criteria to be added to the ledger, and so um, an amazing example of this we've just seen with Shiba Inu, and so Shiba Inu is a meme, what's known as a meme coin, and so um, we had Dogecoin, which uh, Elon Musk had had some fun with, spruking it up, and you know it went to you know tens of thousands ta- of times its original issue price, and and then similarly Shiba Inu. Uh, is is another meme coin. So these coins don't do anything. There's twenty thousand or more old coins as they're called. So Bitcoin and Ethereum we think of as as, as sort of key coins. Um, and then you know you've got some other ones that that work really well. Then you've got a whole variety of things that don't do anything particularly. And so Shiba Inu, um, you know, is just is the meme coin of the moment. So pumped up you know, tens of thousands of times original value. And then just recently had, a you know, dropped 40% in the last couple of days. And what's fascinating about this, which we've never been able to see before, is you can see on the ledger, everyone can see where Shiba Inu is being held, what wallets it's being held in and where it's moving around. And you can't tell who it is. Like you can't, that's that's one of the things, and getting back Adam, to your trustless idea. We can't, Identify the people, but we can see exactly where that coin is. And so, what you what you can do, and it's very interesting for people who are trading this, because what you can see is um, you can see where tokens have been sitting in wallets for a long period of time. And so, so then when you start to see them moving between wallets, the, the 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 market gets a sense that there's about to be a significant trade, and that's what happened with Shiba Inu. Which is the market could see that those big wallets, and I mean literally, I think two thousand wallets control like forty percent of the of the Bitcoin. We've there's a massive mm-hmm. concentration uh, of ownership of these tokens. There's some people who are inc- who are c- incredibly wealthy out of this. But um, Shiba Inu, we had these, there's a, some, a couple of very significant wallets. We started to see some movement in those wallets, um, which which gave the market a sense that those. Those folks were getting ready to trade. And so Shiba Inu then when had a big crash. Uh, so it's fascinating. We, we've, you know, we can't see that with shares, obviously. You can't see when a, when a fund is about to, to, to drop a whole bunch of its shares. So, yeah, interesting.
1: Investors really want to get into this, don't they? Uh, BetaShares Crypto Innovators ETF blew the record for the launch on the ASX. Why do investors want to get in and why is this accelerating so fast?
0: yeah yeah so I guess first and foremost um and I always say this um so this is not financial advice and people should not invest in crypto I think that it is it is insanely volatile and it's a it's a super dangerous market to be in and um so so you know really everyone unless you are prepared to to really Thoroughly research it. Um, you know, you need to be prepared to lose everything because it's um and it's it is um you know for, there's just a lot of there's a lot of very very poor behavior going on. There's, there's you know um fraud and pump and dump and all those sorts of things happening uh, with this because it's a it's an entirely unregulated market. It is terrifying um, from that point of view. It's exciting. I um, mean, you know, from my viewpoint, um, watching it has been remarkable. It's it's effectively watching the the equivalent of the, as the equity markets grew and we started to see this idea of we'll have public companies and they will, you know, issue share that people own those and, and you know, you had your sort of penny stocks and so forth. We are, we are at the beginning of a very similar proposition and it's a different style of equity. Um, uh, but I, I do believe that in five years' time, the cryptocurrency will absolutely be a part of the fabric of financial services and we'll accept and stuff. But the path between here and five years is not going to be linear. There's going to be technology failure. There's going to be scams. There's going to be a whole range of things. A lot of people are going to lose a lot of money. And so, uh, so that's once again, just to reiterate, this is not for the faint heart. I don't recommend it. But one of the problems that we've got, Christy is that uh, it's not regulated. And so, no one can advise on it. So financial planners are not allowed, not allowed to advise on it. So that, that worries me greatly that we, um, we've got this market. It's clearly, you know, the crypto market just hit $2 trillion US, $2 trillion US globally last week. So an enormous amount of money going in there. And, of course, people are new to it because you see the percentages. And particularly, you know, if you look at the younger generation to whom, uh, you know, the boomers... Uh, have effectively taken a lot of money off the table through the asset price boom and property prices. And so for younger folks, the idea of owning their own home has become significantly out of reach. So, you know, if I I look back when I was younger, you know, the concept was I would earn enough to get a deposit to buy a house. Uh, I mean, that's that's so far away from most folks. So consequently, if you earn money, you are, you know, Interested, I think you know, young generation putting it into the crypto market because um, you know, a the returns seem to be extraordinary. Once again, it's it's a highly volatile market. So they, they talk about you take the um, uh, you take the stairs up and the lift down when it comes to crypto prices because mm. it sort of clicks up over time, but I mean, very sharp. And we will see, you know, I'm sure we'll see corrections in, in Bitcoin and others. Um, so so there's a, I think. It's obviously the lure of, uh, you know, extraordinary returns. And then if you put your money in the bank, well, that earns, you know, practically 0% interest. So where where do you put your money? Hmm. And it's literally
1: the gold rush of this current part of this decade, isn't it?
0: Oh, I think that's right. I think that's right. Maybe just talk about the ETF because I think the ETF is interesting. So... ETFs, so exchange traded funds so these these are these have really boomed just generally over the last few years as an investment product. Uh, so the concept with an ETF is that you are relying on a fund manager um, to uh, to manage that ETF, and so you've got concepts of index ETFs. So that there is no management involved in them; they're just following an index. You know, might be the ASX twenty or ASX two hundred or something. Um, so no active management. And then you've got actively managed ETFs. And so that's what this beta shares um, ETF is. And what they're doing is they're not, there's no direct exposure to crypto. So they're not holding Bitcoin. They're not holding Ether. Um, they are investing in companies that have exposure to the sector. So they might be investing in Bitcoin miners or, you know, other companies. And so there's a company called MicroStrategy, which is a, a technology um, sort of solutions business, if you like, but it's all the opportunity to to buy a bunch of Bitcoin and become a proxy for for Bitcoin investors. So that's worked out very well for them. Um, so they're holding, I think, five billion or so of um, of Bitcoin. So so what the BetaShares ETF is holding out? It's not what's called a spot crypto ETF, where where you are actually taking a position on the crypto market or on on say Bitcoin. So. We have, um, I think we've, we the US doesn't have a spot ETF for Bitcoin. They just announced a futures ETF, and so that is it's a little bit boring and technical. But basically, the idea is it's it's based off a futures contract um, in the US. So they haven't quite got their heads around the regulatory issues around a spot market yet. But it's still it's it's more direct exposure than the Australian ETF. Um, but we're seeing more and more of that. We will see. I think, a spot ETF in Australia sort of early next year.
1: Nick, we explore the opportunity of the data age. My question to you on this in particular, is crypto the currency of the data age?
0: Crypto, generally speaking, well, Bitcoin is a very poor currency um, because of the nature of the way that it has to be, that every transaction has to be verified. You know, remember we talked about going through the consensus network. So that takes time. And so very difficult to get the speed of transaction that you need for a currency you know if you look at um, a, you know visa and, and so forth I mean they are doing millions of transactions a second very difficult to get Bitcoin up to anything like that speed. been there's also the energy consumption issue with it um, so so I think that um, if we look at if we look at let's just look at Bitcoin because it's the biggest Coin biggest token by market cap by a reasonable way. Um, although that's about to change um with the flippening, which we can talk about the flippening later on, I not the flippening. Um are so we'll we'll digress on that for a bit. So so right in the moment, Bitcoin is the biggest um coin by market cap, and then ether um from Ethereum is the second biggest. But what's happening is ether has grown massively um because it it basically facilitates um, smart contracts and concepts like decentralized finance. So if Ether by market value has been approaching Bitcoin and the flipping is when Ether overtakes uh, Bitcoin in terms of market cap, and there's a whole range of uh, sort of post-apocalyptic uh, things that are going to happen in the crypto market when we have the so, um, flippening. So, how good is this? This is just like sci-fi come to life. <laughs> right, so we talk about the metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, well. Once we get onto that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so let's let's just think about it. Whether it's the currency. So it may be. So if we look at so Bitcoin, not a great currency. Ethereum, right at the moment, or Ether, is also tricky as a currency. So I mentioned NFT, non-fungible tokens. So the ability to buy these digital assets, you need uh, a currency to buy it, and in order to buy it, so if you're buying it with ether, then there's what's called a gas price, which is a, a basically a cost of doing that transact transaction, which is the cost of um, paying someone who's going to operate the compute power to validate the transaction in ether, and so those gas prices are very high right at the moment, like like. Sort of cripplingly high. So I don't think right at the moment um, we've we've proven that it's the currency necessarily. I think it it can be the case, and there's a whole range of um, movements that are happening. To so right at the moment we base it on proof of work, which validates the transaction, which requires a lot of um, compute power. Um, but we're going to other concepts at proof of stake, which which speeds things up and doesn't require all that compute power. So. So it could be the currency and maybe and there's other coins like Cardano and so forth, which are perhaps better suited to be a currency. So I think we think of, well, I I think of Bitcoin more like gold. Um, so it's a store of value. We know there'll only ever be 21 million of them. Um, and it's fascinating. So right at the moment, I mean, let's say it's 65 or 66,000 US dollars or thereabouts. Um, uh, you know, there are people who are saying that Bitcoin will get to half a Million dollars of value, or a million dollars of value, and you know who knows. Um, but but I think the best way to think of that is in terms of uh, its gold. So so in the same way, it's a store of value um, and a hedge potentially. Now that there's a whole range of people who will not agree with that, blah blah blah. But anyway, that's that's the way I think of it. The most interesting to me, um, at least right at the moment, based on the transactions that I'm working on, is you create so so normally we have a company and the company has equity so it has shares and those shares are um, are basically sold to investors who give the company money in order for the company to pursue uh, its business plan and and then hopefully if all things go well the company increases in value and everyone sort of make more money and the shareholders get uh, more money and wealthy out of that so that's all terrific and we've had that for hundreds of years. What I see now with tokens is the ability to generate uh, another form of valuable asset in addition to equity, Um, in addition to the shares that you have in a company. You can generate a token and then that token itself has value and can uh, appreciate in value. So you could – so so you have – both the equity opportunity and the and the share opportunity, and then you have the token opportunity, where you can create these tokens and um, and sell those tokens, and you can integrate those tokens into your business model such that um, people need those tokens and will pay for them. So so the opportunity there is really quite vast, and we we saw there was the initial coin offering sort of blitz that happened about eighteen months ago, where loads of of organisations in the crypto space or in the um, blockchain space, many of them not not solid companies at all, but issued white papers and issued tokens, and it is identical to the concept that we have when you list a public company, but with no regulation. So, so I think that's a that is a phenomenal opportunity. It's a real you know change in the way we think about
2: how organisations can raise capital to pursue their ends. That's funny that yeah, opportunities opportunity should flourish where there's the uh, vacuum of regulation.
0: Yeah. Ah <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah which, I mean we can you know, so Senator Bragg, who um who's a, an Australian senator, you know, and he's he thankfully focused on crypto and digital assets and has just um produced the the Bragg report that came down a week and a half ago or thereabouts. Um are talking about how Australia might be involved in and regulate the digital asset space, and whilst you know, I, I just really applaud, particularly that senator, because it's 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 mind-numbingly complicated, and and he embraced it with his team, and they produced a report. Unfortunately, the report, you know, in a nutshell, says yeah, there's something pretty significant here and we should regulate it, but we don't have any details of that. Um, and, that, you know, I think that's just very hard. So it's sort of been moved to Treasury and other places to see how we regulate it. But, but you know, to, to come back to um, Christy's initial point around there's a lot of people who want to invest in this, we saw the interest in the ETF, there's a lot of people who are going to lose a lot of money um, mm-hmm. because they just get, you know, excited by the the potential upside. But it's, you know, it's a lot of poor behaviour, here, And I'm just concerned that if we don't start to regulate it soon, uh, the social ills from this could be quite significant.
2: I want us to come back to something that you were talking about, I mentioned earlier, where you said you can't identify people through this distributed ledger technology. Um, And I just wanted to sort of perhaps ask you to expound on that idea a little bit, because... from what I understand, you've got a wallet and that wallet has, you know, if for one of a a more sort of nuanced or sophisticated description, you could identify that wallet by some kind of a token. And then the moment that wallet makes a purchase, which is sort of dispositive as to who it actually belongs to, presumably, you know, that would be an opportunity to be able to re-identify somebody on the basis of their purchase behavior. Is that right? Or is there something that gets in the way of that re-identification?
0: If you think about how do
2: we... In the
0: normal banking system, how do we identify folks? So you have, to, you have to on-ramp through a regulated entity. So you have to on-ramp through the bank and the bank goes through its, um, you know, they have their anti-money laundering and, and counterterrorism financing um, obligations and Austrak obligations and so forth. So can be, you know, it can be easy to identify an individual. So, you know, there's Nick, that's Nick's bank account. So that's all good because you've got that intermediary. The the thing with crypto and what's happening. I'm not a technologist, so so I can't go super deep into that space. But effectively, um, you can uh, you know, trade and store crypto without necessarily on ramping into it through a um uh, a, you know through a um, uh, you know a, a particular intermediary. So. So that's uh, you know, that that's and you know, there for the folks who are, who are very good at trading and who want to, you know, keep themselves um, you know, out of out of the uh, the um, the eye line of the regulator, it's particularly the tax office. Um so so yeah, so that's that's effectively because they're they're able to um buy and hold um without having to on ramp through a regulated entity. And yeah, how that happens in practice, uh, you know, I'm not not 100% certain on exactly how they do that. But yeah, effectively, there's a whole range of wallets out there where no one really knows who owns them.
1: So Mm. let's talk now a little bit about this convergence of these (sighs) digital and online technologies. You've talked a little bit about NFTs. We've spoken a lot about crypto. So Facebook renamed itself Meta this week as well um, and is throwing 10,000 developers into building Meta, which will be Facebook's corner of the metaverse. Nick, what is the
0: metaverse? Ah, it's the metaverse. It's a challenging notion because the minute you mention Facebook, there's a super polarising brand in the market right at the moment. There's a lot of people who are not happy with um, Facebook and obviously they're just at the whistleblower and so forth. So, So we need to just be conscious. The metaverse isn't just a Facebook concept. The metaverse, it was that a coined term back in the early 90s by a science fiction writer. The concept is really about the embodied internet. So when we think about our experience of the internet, it may be, um, you know, it started out through URLs and going to websites. And then, um, you know, of recent times we've seen the advent of Zoom and Teams and so forth bringing us together um, to collaborate Virtually, but in a, in a quite a, uh, a sort of familiar setting where it's okay—it's just a screen and, and just someone's video—and so the concept of the metaverse is this idea of the embodied internet, where you will actually see, feel, and experience uh, the world—that this virtualized world—and so to, to give you a sense of it, so I bought an Oculus just um, just the other day—an Oculus. Is um is it it's a, a a virtual reality company? It's it was bought by Facebook, and um and so it's a virtual reality headset, and you go into that, and and you wander around in that world, and it is getting perilously close to the same experience that you have in the offline world, and so we know that virtual reality has great um. It, Great, great use cases across healthcare. So we're seeing, you know, the the ability to do training, but also um, actually identify, uh, you know, various diseases and do operations and so forth with augmented reality in manufacturing, um, in retail. So it it's basically, yeah, this concept of the merging of your physical world and your virtual world. And to give you a sense of of how immersive it is. So so the there's a virtual world called Second Life. And so Second Life's been around for I don't know probably eight or nine years. Um and I was sort of was sort of quite a convert to Second Life uh back, you know, seven years ago or so. Um, but that's a very uh, bland proposition. So it's effectively just URL based. It's like going into, you know, just a you know you just sort of travel through a, um, a cartoonish world, and you've got a headset on the mic, uh, and and there was that. There's a proposition there where you can, um, you know, you go and you dance at a at a club, and uh, there's nothing weirder than that experience, can I say? I mean. Uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm no dancer anyway, um, and I, I come from Queensland. It was outlawed. dancing was outlawed in Queensland <laughs> when I was growing up. Uh, Jambiorki Peterson refused to allow people to dance. That's my excuse. Um, but what we saw were you know in in Second Life you would go in and your little avatar so you're manipulating an avatar through this sort of virtualized cartoonish style world and you go into the club. And so your little avatar is sort of dancing next to other avatars that are dancing. It's just that's just weird and and unfulfilling and um, and very similar to the way I dance normally. So, <laughs> um, but then with Oculus, um, you've got your VR headset on. You've got um, two hand controllers, and you go into a club there, and uh, the dancing is where you know you are actually using your full body. It's a very, very different experience I mean it, you know it it didn't stop that it's a what what I do and call dancing is as unpleasant uh in the virtual world as it is in the real world, but it's a it's a very immersive experience, and I think that's where we're headed with the metaverse, which is you know the idea that you will go a shop and you'll be so taken into this world uh that you won't necessarily sort of see it as. Distinct or different to to the real world because you will, you know, be, your senses will be stimulated in such a way so everything you know vibrates in your hand and blah, blah blah blah.
1: Yeah. I was talking at dinner last night with my two youngest kids, my 13 year old son and my 11 year old daughter, who are digital natives. Right. Yeah. Um, they certainly know how to trade in NFTs and side <laughs> games, for <laughs> example. And uh, well, they know the economies. They know the first hand risks and. You know, they they said they think it's not a good idea. My son reminded me of Ready Player One,
0: yeah.
1: uh, that movie by Steven Spielberg based yeah. on the novel yeah. where in 2045 people seek to escape from reality through the entertainment universe called Oasis, and my kids think it's a terrible future. They want to know how we ensure our earth and natural environment doesn't go to waste. Uh, they talked about wastelands. If human life and experiences are played out in the metaverse, and in particular, my daughter wants to know how we stop people from literally going insane in that environment. Nick, what are the risks, and how will they be managed?
0: Yeah. Oh, look. I I think, and your your children are uh, are wise beyond their years because it does. You know, I, I I'm, I'm intensely fascinated with this and with what's happening, um, but I don't. You know, I I am. Very concerned about the potential risk because, and one thing I found with the Oculus is um, it does it does draw you in. I mean, I'm not I'm not a gamer as such, but uh, I found it far more compelling. I've been trialling VR over the last few years, and it's always been very clunky. i got a bit got a bit sick because the refresh rates on the on the visuals were too slow and so forth. Now it's it's actually super compelling. Uh, and I absolutely see a proposition there where, uh, you know, the the virtual world will just be so compelling, and the dopamine that'll be pumped through our system when you're in the virtual world that it just, you know, the the reality, we, we, you know, we just won't be able to cope. We, you know, we'd be like, oh, who, who can be bothered with reality? And we, you know, we see that now with social media and how how well. Um, uh, Organised they are with, their, with the way they trigger dopamine um, hits into our brain to keep us coming back. We and then you imagine that, but just magnified and 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 a full body immersive experience. And particularly if your reality is not so great, I mean we're very lucky. Obviously live in a beautiful country and so forth. But I think for majority of the world, you know their reality may not be, you know. Quite as fantastic as what we get to experience, and so the the ability to drop into the virtual world could well be, um, you know, far better for them a far, far preferable experience. So I see I see tremendous social. So I, we already see it now with you know mental illness is clearly you know, one of the one of the major issues of our time. Um, and, and how do we manage that? And that is the only going um, to get worse. But the problem
2: that I have is. I'm not sure how you stop this juggernaut. Exactly. There seems to be something kind of, you know, totally inevitable, if you like, about this this set of movements. I've been reflecting a little bit lately on some of the really kind of impactful statements by people who have been, you know, in amongst the technological disruptive sort of space. Um, In 2011, you had Mark Andreessen with his famous uh, statement, software is eating the world. And at the time, I think, you know, there was mostly a commentary on, on uh, technology businesses as being, you know, where, where all, of the, all of the play was at the time. But then since then, we've had the World Economic Forum come out a couple of times putting this notion of your own nothing and you'll be happy about it as, um, as central to, I think, their messaging back in 2016. And then again in 2020, um, you know, that message coming out I would love to know your thoughts Nick on well firstly do you think that's do you think that's the reality that we are heading to inevitably but also nfts um would seem to be the vehicle for the new ownership if you like in the world the way we do you know have less ownership over the physical reality um how what what role the nFTs play then in uh, staking our claim in the new world Two massive questions, that your first one which is the inevitability of this and this this sort of
0: gets to i think a core question which which i i think about a lot and in fact in in our own podcast smart dust investigates we're just launching our investigation and i've done a series of podcasts into what is the true nature of reality and are we living in a simulation um because elon musk and, you know, like him or not, he is he is the most successful business person of all time. I mean, he has revolutionized, you know, space travel, you know, the automotive industry and the energy industry, you know, as well as his tangential involvement in Hyperloop and other things and
2: satellites. I mean, he is he's a genius. And in, in some ways, his, um, his early involvement in electronic. Uh, payments as yeah, well, yeah, correct? Right?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, so his view is that there is less than one billionth of a chance that what we are living in is actually a base reality and that, in fact, we are living in some sort of simulation. So, I will just give your listeners that, um, that, that tidbit to, uh, to think about, but, you know, effectively, if you look at the matrix, which sort of first popularized this concept, which is, um, you know, it is what is the nature of our reality? So, so I think I think that's a question that this begs because so Musk's view is that um, we've seen the advances in virtual and augmented reality and in gaming um, come so fast that in you know ten years time it will be almost impossible to tell the difference between you know your virtual reality and and your and your real reality. So um, and the brain can be tricked into all those sorts of things. So so I think that's a you know, it's a challenging notion, um, I think, for us all. But getting back to NFTs, why don't we, you know, something that we can understand now. So NFTs, so, you know, if we talk about this concept of of really the digital asset revolution and so cryptocurrency, so blockchain is the enabling uh, technology for the digital asset revolution, cryptocurrencies, sit on it, and now non-fungible tokens. And so non-fungible tokens are... um that ability, as I mentioned, with um you know sending Christy uh the the PDF of the $20 bill, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing interesting or unique about that. But with an NFT, let's say I uh, you know, let's say I was a I was a wonderful artist and I I drew something particularly fabulous on that twenty dollar bill and then protected that as a non fungible token and then gave that to Christy. Now that that PDF, or it would be then uh, encapsulated as a piece of digital content in a non-fungible token. So that would be unique and and we would always know that um, Christie owned that and could sell that, etc. So the the concept of the non-fungible token allows, I mean its earliest use case is in art and so we've seen that artists can create digital art pieces and then wrap them in this technology in this NFT technology and then sell them. And, um, and so whoever owns that piece of code, which effectively is all it is, so whoever owns that NFT is the rightful owner of that piece of digital artwork. And, and so we've just, you know, we've recently seen, you know, a, a piece of digital art sell for over $60 million. Um, uh, so, so the NFT space has exploded. And the fascinating thing about NFTs is it's just programming. It's just code. And so what you can do is you put into the code that when that NFT is then on sold, so um, then the artist gets 5% or however much of that secondary sale and, and so on and so forth, which is fascinating because we've never seen really, well, we've never seen artists get that trailing commission as to the value of their art into the future. So I think that's very powerful. And then, But where NFTs really, it starts with art, but then there's a wonderful, wonderful business in uh, comes out of australia so it's called z run and so it's nft horses and so what you can do is you can they've, they've, they've done it's just a, i mean it's graphically it's it is beautiful um, and the, and the technology behind it is is fascinating but they have effectively recreated um the the horse genome, if you like and the, and and all of the dna that's possible within the horses um in their own world in Zedrun run and then you can um, you can buy these NFT horses. So if I buy, so I have a horse um, that I run in Z Run. So it's no half measures. No half measures is not a is not a great is not a great horse. I'd have to say it could be going to the virtual blue <laughs> factory at some stage. But um, you know, what? I'm, I remain hopeful that no half measures will uh, will come good. But um, so you, so you basically you, you buy this horse it is unique in its characteristics. And you race it against other horses, and there's a prize money for that. And then, fascinating, you can breed horses and create little NFT horses, which then have value as well. So, these horses can sell, you can buy and sell as NFTs. And I mean, this business has not been going very long a couple of years. It's last, I mean, the, the rumor is it's at its last capital raise, it was valued at over a billion dollars. Super popular, Australian created. And with the Melbourne Cup um, just recently, and full credit to the Victorian uh, Racing Committee, I think it is, that so the BRC, who run the Melbourne Cup, they did a partnership with Z Run, um, and Z Run ran a a separate Melbourne Cup event in Decentraland, which is one of these virtual lands in the metaverse, and um, and so you could race horses in you know on the Melbourne Cup um, track and so forth. Um, so so for credit to the VRC, you would have thought the VRC, you know, Melbourne Cup, or a sta- you know, Melbourne, you know, very sort of, uh, you know, uh, very um, conservative, one would say, but the VRC saw the opportunity and the, the, the head of the VRC in his comment about the relationship and the partnership with Zedrun said, you know, we hold innovation at our core as one of our core values and so that's why we did this, um, uh, this deal and, you know, that, there's the opportunity for all organisations. It doesn't matter whether you've been around for one year or 100 years, um, recognising that this new world is coming and how can you leverage your assets and your skills and your community, your customers, and, and use the new technology, um, you know, that that's going to be who wins into the future. So, so it's not, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. It, it doesn't – we don't just suddenly – you know, fall off a cliff and 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 we're all in virtual worlds, there will be a blurry of blindness. Like, you know, financial services has been, you know, almost everything that you can do in financial services, borrowing, lending, insuring, and so forth, has now been replicated in what's called decentralized finance, which grew over the last 18 months from zero to over $100 billion in smart contracts, um, you know, in 18 months. So So what we're seeing is this virtual world, the metaverse, Will be it will be a morphing. You can you can buy Gucci sneakers for eighteen dollars. They're virtual Gucci sneakers, um, and and just so you can buy those, you know, for eighteen dollars and stick them on your avatar in the metaverse.
1: It's mind blowing. Um, your team at Norton Rose Fulbright have written a fabulous paper about what is the metaverse. So for people wanting to really understand what it is, uh, what the potential is, what the implications are, the risks. It's a great paper, which we'll make available and share with people. Just uh, narrowing in on the data question, participation really in the metaverse involves collection of unprecedented amounts of personal data. So today, in today's world, smartphone apps and websites, they track our movements and our transactions, et cetera. But in the metaverse, organisations will be able to collect information about individuals, people's actual psychological response responses, their movements, maybe even brainwave patterns, gauging a very deep understanding of the individual's thought processes and behaviours. How does the policy environment keep up and think about the safety for mm. the protection of data and for society? When the market makers are streaming ahead at a race of knots, which is hard to imagine, how policymakers can address these issues? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, uh, yeah. I mean, I wrote a book on privacy, and it's a you know it's a subject very close to my heart. I, I, and I don't know. I is frankly, I just. You know, even if we look at what we've tried to do with privacy regulation, and so we've got through from from the EU the GDPR and so forth, which is you know it's the strongest privacy regulation there is, it hasn't necessarily changed um, the way that large corporates use our personal information. You know, the way the way that we experience it is um, we we probably have to click a lot more I agree's, um, but you know the. People are always going to be faced with that proposition, which is: do they want to engage in whatever it is, you know, whether it's you know using a particular social media app or uh, you know using you know getting getting into the metaverse, and um, and if the price to play in that is surrendering of your personal information, then what we've seen is people will do that. You know, people would would give over their personal information rather than pay for things, and you know, and that's driven the advertising model behind you know social media and search which has been phenomenal as we say and right at the moment i mean there's a, there's some extraordinary tech out there that can measure your emotional state uh, you know right now through call center recording and so forth so you know we're starting to see um the collection of data to move well beyond just you know your name and your email address and your phone up for it and so forth but you know who owns your emotional state and then obviously you know we're, we're not that complicated, right? Because you can, it, it, you know, the, the algorithm can figure out, you know, if you're in a particular emotional state to deliver up this sort of message um, to you at that time will increase your chances of buying something. Um, you know, so we, we know that all of that tech exists. And then once you drop into the pure metaverse, their ability to to, to know everything about you is extraordinary. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I share your... Uh, your children's concerns as to uh, what will it mean and sort of, you know, hearken back to a simpler time. I mean, so, I, you know, I get quite a bit of grief on social media. You know, I've got a lot of grief for buying a Facebook Oculus. People are like, oh, how can you support Facebook? And the problem that I have with that is that, I mean, from my point of view, you know, given my involvement in the sector and particularly the, the regulation sector, you no, know, I feel like I need to understand how this technology works um, in order to be able to, you know, I'm, I'm advising people on virtual reality deals. I, you know, I don't understand how it works and I legitimately advise them. And, and so people say, you know, I say to everyone, turn off Facebook and turn off Instagram. I, I'm just not sure that's, that's what's going to happen. I mean, people, there's a great amount of good. If we go back to, um, you know, when the, with the arrival of the car, so a lot of people didn't want the car because more people would die because we had cars than when we had horses. No doubt, you know, a, a massive amount more have died as a result of car accidents than when you had horses. But the benefit of cars has been phenomenal. And so we're at that same inflection point here. And so we've got to figure out how do we, how do we use this technology to maximise the benefits and to minimise the harm, and there will be harms, but I think that car analogy, I, I think, works perfectly here because I do think the future is phenomenal. I do think there's there's wonderful use cases out there, and it's you know it will be it will be good, but we've got to recognise that there are lots of ills that come with this, and so there's a regulatory framework. There's also you know responsibility that we want from the vendors who are promulgating this stuff.
1: Totally agree, Nick, and thank you so much for that. And thank you for your support of our work as well. It's been a fantastic conversation today. Really appreciate your time and look forward to hearing what's next on the agenda. Oh,
0: indeed. Well, it's like, it's all changed. It'll all change tomorrow. Christine. thank you very much and, and congratulations with the wonderful work uh, you do with Sidana. a big fan and, you know, really enjoyed
2: the discussion. So best wishes and have a great day. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast.
1: Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and
2: follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.